0: Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. For joining us for another episode of the ITE Talks Transportation podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. This episode of ITE Talks Transportation is brought to you by Wejo. Nick Nigro is the founder of Atlas Public Policy. This summer, he closed the ITE annual meeting in New Orleans talking about the future of transportation electrification. Nick is our guest this month on the podcast and we're going to dig a bit deeper about his thoughts on the topic. Nick Welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Great to be here, Bernie. Thanks for inviting me. Let me start off because a lot of folks may not be familiar with Atlas Public Policy. Why don't you tell us what that organization you founded is all about, if you would, please?
1: Right on. Uh, So I started Atlas back in 2015. Uh, I have a background in engineering and policy, and that's really what we're trying to do with the company. We are trying to fuse together The use of technology in developing public policy, our focus is mostly in the climate space. So we do a lot of work in electrifying transportation. We also do work in building decarbonization, general climate policy, and a fair bit of work in disinformation. We're working with a large number of groups like different levels of government, uh, nonprofits, and foundations, and industry. And so we try to sit at the intersection of all the interests of those groups and arm them with good data to help develop good data-driven public policy.
0: Being involved with all of these things, and I thought it was interesting that you talk about misinformation because that's certainly something that is very much in the public consciousness uh, right now with elections and things Mm -hmm. of that sort. But talking about the electrification field and Mm -hmm. what your involvement is with that, can you give us a sense of where we're at when it comes to where we are in the uh, curve as far as transportation electrification is
1: concerned, please? So it's a great question uh, because the answer is quite dependent on where you are uh, mm-hmm. physically and whether that be in the country or in the world uh you know if you go as far away as norway you're almost at the end of the adoption curve you're at you know 85 percent adoption for evs right now for new vehicle sales if you come stateside and you look in california there are pockets of california that are pushing 25 percent ev adoption for new sales but overall in the united states on average we're about 5 6 7% adoption right now. So we are still in the very early stages on average across the country, but that growth is accelerating very quickly. We tend to think that the adoption of EVs will follow a technology diffusion curve, which kind of looks like an S. And so we're just getting up to that straight part of the S. And so I can expect in the next few years, we're going to rapidly increase the rate of adoption and folks are going to be seeing EVs in their neighborhoods if they don't already.
0: You mentioned about where you are physically affecting where we are on the curve, Norway being one example and the US being five, six, 7%. Within the US, are there variations between where some places are versus where other places are?
1: Yeah. You know, California has been leading the way with EVs uh, with just about half or more of total sales uh, since the market started back in 2010. Uh, but there are several states now that are pushing ten percent EV adoption, uh, and there are some states that are still struggling in the you know two or three percent range. But in all cases, there's a lot of growth. The extent to which you know we're going to reach mainstream consumers across the country is really going to be a function of the ability of the auto industry to deliver that product, because there is a lot of pent up demand right now.
0: You talk about the auto industry being able to meet that demand that's out there. What about the grid and its ability to meet the demand if indeed everybody who wanted to get an electrical vehicle right now was able to do so? Can the grid handle what's needed to power all those vehicles?
1: You mentioned earlier misinformation. This is one of those things where it's like, can the grid really handle all these EVs? Because you know the load of an, of a single electric vehicle can be at or more than the load of your entire house. And so on the face of it, that sounds like a lot. But the reality of the situation is the grid is designed to handle the worst case, which only happens occasionally in terms of how much electricity demand is there. That's what the grid is designed to handle. So on average, there is lots of spare capacity in the grid, not just at the regional level, but even in local neighborhoods. And so when we look at places like California, where they had well over a million vehicles adopted at this point, we don't see a lot of issues and challenges with the grid. But make no mistake, as we start to expand the market and get into the further reaches of the country, the electrical utility is going to be a key stakeholder to make sure that local distribution networks and and transformers are all ready to go. Because there could be some problems, but when you look back to how the Electric utility industry integrated air conditioning. It was a big, huge load relative to what was there. And it required a lot of engineering know how and planning. And that's, that's what we're going to be looking for in the transportation space. And in fact, in some ways, this is going to be even a bigger transition because it's not just transportation that's being electrified today. We are also seeing accelerating electrification efforts in the building space too.
0: A lot of the public discussion about electrification for transportation touts the environmental benefits, Mm -hmm. but you spoke at the ITE annual meeting. And you also talked about the strong economic benefits that come from expanded use of electric vehicles for both fleets and personal vehicles. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would, please.
1: So the auto industry itself transportation is a multi-trillion dollar market. And so if the United States is really going to lead in that industry as we did in the first century of automobiles, you know, we have to be on the cutting edge of electric vehicles, because that's where the future is going, not just in this country, but around the world. And so that that opportunity, we can't pass it up. There are tens of thousands of jobs on the line, hundreds of billions of dollars on the line. Right now, to date, we've tracked on one of our products, EV Hub, over $700 billion that's been committed to electric vehicles so far by manufacturers, battery suppliers, etc. Less than 200 of that is slated to come to the United States. The rest of it's going elsewhere. And so what we have to do here in, in this country is make EVs an attractive market, not just to build and get them out into the marketplace, but also to buy uh, because transportation companies want to sell their product near where they build them. And so we have to make sure that we have policy on both ends of that spectrum in order to make sure that we're leading uh, into the future.
0: We'll be back with more of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast right after this message from Wejo.
1: Wejo is a leading software-as-a-service provider that analyzes connected and electric vehicle data to create real-time insights and help organizations like yours achieve incredible outcomes. Whether you're trying to solve EV infrastructure challenges, improve road safety, or improve the way our cities move, Wejo can help you overcome and answer these challenges with real-time actionable insights. Welcome to the Smart Mobility Revolution. Find out more at Ouijo.com slash public dash sector.
0: Talking about the bipartisan infrastructure law and inflation reduction law, how do you see that having an effect in terms of advancing electric vehicles? And Going along with that how it, achievable do you think the goals of these laws are and what kind of time frame are we talking about
1: These laws Inflation Reduction Act and Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act are historic when compared to anything else the United States has done related to climate change It's tens of billions of dollars that's going into the ability to build and sell vehicles and to build out the accompanying infrastructure for them However Those tens of billions, while they are remarkable and historic, they are definitely not enough. We are going to need very active electric utilities throughout the country in order to make sure that power is going to be delivered to parking spots. And we're going to need tons and tons of investment from the private sector to make sure that we have the supply chain ready to go to get batteries into the hands of auto manufacturers so they can assemble those vehicles for sale. So these these laws are definitely a game changer and put the United States on a stronger footing globally to compete, but they are not the end game. This is just the beginning.
0: You talk about the supply chain and you talked about it at the top of the podcast about how the auto industry has to gear up to meet the demand that's that's already out there for these kinds of vehicles. What needs to be done to make that supply chain able to accommodate the demand that is already out there and probably will grow?
1: The Inflation Reduction Act or IRA, as they call it, is built around trying to onshore lots of facets of the building of and manufacturing of electric vehicles. In fact, the tax credit itself for EVs was reformed in this law for passenger vehicles. And it was specifically targeted to ensure that the vehicles that get that benefit from the federal government are assembled here in North America. In addition, a portion of that tax credit is focused on the battery. And so what this does is essentially encourage companies from around the world to bring their manufacturing and assembly here into the United States and into our allies so that we can make sure that we are getting the equipment from places that we know and that we can trust and that will set up sustainable supply chains. One of the real risks of transitioning to electric vehicles is that we trade one- Bad dependency for another. And with laws like IRA and other policies that are in place around the country in the States, we are trying to ensure that we don't repeat some of the mistakes we've made with combustion engines.
0: Are there raw materials that have to go into these batteries that are not readily available from allies? Is that part of an issue that
1: has to be addressed? This is going to be a very complicated facet of this transition. Right now, there's lots of potential for extracting minerals and other parts of batteries from around the world, including in the United States. But we have to really cut through some of the barriers that we face to extracting minerals, both here in the US but elsewhere among our allies. And that's going to be something that is going to put into conflict, potentially, some of the advocates for transportation electrification. Many of these folks are not supportive of resource extraction in general, but in order for EVs to be a solution, not just for climate change, but for other issues that oil dependence has introduced into society, we have to do some resource extraction in the United States and in other developed countries. And that's gonna take policy reform, not just at the local level, but also at the national level.
0: And I think you touched on this already, but I wanna make sure that we address it specifically How ready do you think the current industry and market are for a planned rapid expansion
1: to make this all happen? The answer is really going to be dependent on what part of the industry we're talking about. In general, as an engineer and talking to a bunch (laughs) of engineers, we're all ready to go. You know, We have the capacity to do this. Whether or not we're given the resources in order to do it and have the policy framework in place in order to act. Is really the question. And so when you look at, for example, charging infrastructure, we need to really revisit how the electric utility engages with their customers for transportation in order to make sure that transportation electrification is a core part of their business. In the case of the auto industry and manufacturing of vehicles, we have to really focus on the supply chain and make sure that the extent to which we can guarantee we have good suppliers that are domestically sourced and sustainably sourced, that's going to take additional policy reforms in addition to what I mentioned earlier from the Inflation Reduction Act.
0: You talk about the supply chain, you talk about materials. One of the things that we're seeing right now in the United States are workforce issues. We see it when we go shopping, when we go out to eat. Is the workforce there
1: to gear up to supply what we need? We do not have enough labor in the united states to do a lot of the things we're trying to do as a country right now we don't have the training and sometimes the labor is in the wrong place maybe you have the capacity in one state but the manufacturing facility is in another and so to that end we have to really think hard about how do we ensure that where the incentives are going to build and deploy this technology matches well with labor and continue to encourage folks who are interested in manufacturing and other jobs of that nature have the skills they need. And that's going to take a lot of education reform, which gets quickly out of my area of expertise. (laughs) Uh, But I do know we have to do a lot in that area in order to get us to where we want to go. The other thing that I think we need to keep in mind around sustainability and avoiding issues of the past is around the quality of these jobs. What we don't want to do is introduce a large number of jobs in one manufacturing center or hub that can quickly be displaced and leave those communities behind. That's an error of the past, and we need to try to make sure that whatever policy we put in place to encourage the development of these jobs, that they create good-paying, long-term, stable jobs so that families can relocate, communities can be built, and they won't be left behind as the industry progresses.
0: Again, I think you've touched on this, but let me be a little more specific with this question. What do you see right now as the biggest challenges facing the
1: transportation electrification space? Right now, for the last 15 years, I should say, we've been focused on trying to get the attention of the industry and the policymaking community to say EVs are the future of transportation. We got their attention. We've got laws in place to get things going here in the United States. We have a globally active competition right now, and the United States is poised to enter the leadership circle. The key barrier and challenge we face is the implementation of these laws and the acceleration of EV adoption in a way that meets the expectations of consumers. Just for an example, if you're an average consumer, You go to the gas station occasionally, you fill up quickly, and you get on your way. With EVs, for the most part, people are going to charge at home. That's going to be an immediate benefit and experience for them because they're not going to have to go to a gas station, and they always kind of have the juice they need to get to where they want to go. But for EVs to succeed, the times they do need to use public charging have to be as smooth and issue-free as they experience with gas vehicles today. And that's a challenge. A lot of technology that's being deployed for the first time, delivering lots of power to a parking spot. And there's a lot of intercommunication that needs to go on between the charging station and the vehicle. And so getting through those issues and making sure that the customer experience meets their expectations is gonna be an immediate near-term challenge.
0: As this all ramps up, Do you see the cost of EVs coming down, the cost of charging infrastructure that you may need to install in your house so you have fast charging? Mm -hmm. There are going to be some economies of scale there, do you think?
1: Yes. 10 years ago now, Tesla introduced their Model S. And for the most part, the auto industry kind of laughed at them because they said, you are packing a bunch of laptop batteries into a car. There's no way this is going to work. Sure enough, it did. And sure enough, Tesla's demonstrated that they can make a lot of money selling electric cars. So the profitability of, of electric vehicles has been demonstrated with Tesla. And they did a lot of that or achieved that goal in part through economies of scale, as you mentioned. We've driven down the cost of batteries 90% in 10 years. We're already well below where we thought we would be well into the future because of how successful companies like Tesla have been with the mass market adoption of these vehicles. We can keep going. There is still some head headroom and room to drive down costs. The key is really how well these vehicles will compete relative to conventional technology. Because we've already squeezed out a lot of the cost efficiencies in a, many facets of the vehicles, whether it be conventional or electric. One thing is for certain, the cost of conventional technology is only going to go up because of pressure around emission regulations and other facets of that technology. On the other hand, the cost of developing electric vehicles should continue to decline because we have a long way to go still with reaching that scale and learning by doing that we already had from conventional technology.
0: One of the things that you mentioned down in New Orleans at the annual meeting is that electrification can help promote equity in traditionally underserved communities.
1: Mm -hmm. How so? Many of the large polluting trucks that operate either in ports or provide delivery services operate in underserved communities. These trucks tend to be high polluting and they tend to not have great maintenance on them. These communities, as a result, have higher disproportionate effect, health effects from transportation. By electrifying not just passenger cars, but also trucks and buses, we are providing a benefit to those communities without them even necessarily driving an EV, because we are reducing the pollution burden that they face in their neighborhoods. And it's that kind of opportunity that we need to seize. I will say that In the early days of EVs, it was not certain you could get to electrifying some of these heavier vehicles with batteries. Once again, prognosticators were wrong, and you can electrify school buses, transit buses, even many class two through eight vehicles with batteries, and we're doing it.
0: Well, Nick, I want to thank you for taking the time out to chat with me. We've been talking with Nick Nigro. He is the founder of Atlas Public Policy here on ITE Talks Transportation. Again, Nick, thanks so much. Thanks again, Bernie. Have a nice day. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to our sponsor, Wejo.